Welcome to the CrocCast, a podcast for peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. So I'd like to begin by introducing the people in today's conversation. I'm going to start with Walter. Walter Shire is an Associate Professor of Computer Science and Engineering at the University of Notre Dame and also a Kroc Institute faculty fellow. Walter's an expert in artificial intelligence with applications to media integrity and topics in technology ethics. Michael Jankowski recently received his PhD in theological ethics and peace studies from the Kroc Institute and is now working as a postdoctoral research associate in the Department of Computer Science and Engineering at the University of Notre Dame. Michael focuses both on media literacy efforts as well as on building artificial intelligence systems capable of identifying trending disinformation campaigns. And I, Ernesto Verdeja, am an Associate Professor of Political Science and Peace Studies at the Kroc Institute here at Notre Dame. And my work focuses largely on the causes and patterns of genocide and mass atrocities, atrocity early warning and prevention, and political reconciliation and justice after violence. So thanks for being on the podcast, y'all. Welcome. Thanks, Ernesto. Thank you. Cool. So I thought what we could do is we could start off by basically kind of talking a bit about what some of the big issues and challenges are facing us right now. So maybe talk a little bit about what disinformation is and how it differs from misinformation and also how disinformation has been important in the American context. And I wanted to start off with a few preparatory or kind of clarifying points around this. So when we talk about disinformation and we distinguish it from misinformation, it seems that we're largely focusing on two different types of information that is false, that contains false material or false information. Disinformation, however, is normally understood by scholars and by researchers as being intentionally erroneous, intentionally false, whereas information can just be all sorts of information that are incorrect, false, include material that is not quite true, but nevertheless isn't put forth intentionally. And I draw this distinction at the beginning of our conversation because I think it's important as we move forward and we talk a little bit about what the challenges are facing the American context today, what the challenges are facing politically the world today, and also how to respond to that, that we understand that there's different ways of kind of comprehending and classifying what the object of study is. So disinformation, it strikes me, is really kind of one of the key types of wrongful information that we should be focusing on. Walter, could you begin with giving us a brief description of what artificial intelligence is? That's a great question, Ernesto. I suspect that most people's opinion on artificial intelligence is formed by science fiction. We tend to think about general artificial intelligence embodied in androids, mimicking all aspects of humanity. In practice, this is not the case. Artificial intelligence is a discipline within computer science that is trying to replicate certain very specific competencies of natural intelligence in computers. Most often this takes the form of perceptual systems. For instance, instead of having an Android that can do everything a human can do, imagine having a vision system that is pretty close to an animal's visual system. It can recognize objects, it can understand scenes in some capacity, but doesn't have all of the set of complex behaviors that follow from recognizing what's in a scene. That's the type of thing we're thinking of when we talk about AI, especially in the context of this conversation. It's something that seems to be occurring not only through traditional print media and through other sources like that, but really in social media. We really see this as having taken off 
through conspiracy networks like the QAnon networks and a number of other kind of networks and social media communities that have been advancing this language of there existing a deep state in the United States that seeks to undermine the authority of President Trump, and it seeks to effectively transform and destroy the United States. So this has been a kind of a movement going on here for a while that really has been pushing these campaigns of disinformation. Walter Michael, I wonder if there was something else you wanted to add to this as we kind of set the stage for this project that we're going to be investing a little bit and how to respond to these visual disinformation campaigns. Yeah, I think that gives the landscape an interesting, you know, set of actors, an interesting set of distribution networks. It makes this problem really, really complicated to figure out, right? Because there's so many moving parts. And that's really where computer science can come in to help us understand these things. Because a unique facet of this movement, which propelled this attack this month, came from the internet, which is something that is very, very new when we think about conflict resolution and world politics. Well, uh, thank you, Walter. Uh, Michael, did you have a, a few points you wanted to add just at this on these preliminary comments about the present condition? Yeah, thanks, Ernesto. I think that there's something that's very interesting that's happened after the inauguration and after the dissolution of some of the disinformation campaigns that were swirling around prior to President Biden's inauguration was this realization by many of the people who had supported some of these conspiracy theories and some of the narratives that were disinformation narratives is the realization that this was all false and that this was very untrue, or that they were completely misled or that they were duped. And I think that some folks are realizing that and some folks are beginning to take stock of the kinds of questions, where are they getting their media from, where are they getting their information from, where are they getting the narratives that they were believing from. And I think we all in this present moment of the swirling disinformation need to be mindful of that. We'll talk more about that in a bit. But you know, just to highlight this moment in particular, after your opening remarks, where some people are beginning to experience the unraveling of those sources and the unraveling of those narratives. It's an interesting moment sociologically and politically to be taking stock of those things. Great. Thank you. So we have a situation, essentially, if we were to take just the United States as a starting point, we have a situation where there's been an ongoing series of disinformation campaigns and disinformation networks around a variety of, in the American case, on politicized right-wing forum, uh, fora. And this is a situation that has helped propel a small but important movement that at least runs the threat of advancing political violence in the United States, of carrying out political violence. But it's much broader than this. It's not just about political violence. It's also about undermining the certainty and belief in basic kind of claims about empirical claims about what's going on in the world today. So we see this kind of campaign that has emerged and it continues to go on and on. QAnon has been around for about three years, more or less. It'll be interesting to see what happens with it in the post-inauguration world. But I want to draw back a little bit and emphasize also that this is a situation that we have seen happening around the world. This isn't just the United States. We've seen all sorts of contexts where social media has been an important incubator for disinformation campaigns around the world, whether it's elections in Indonesia or in Colombia, whether it's ongoing political situation in Ukraine because of its relationship with Russia et cetera, et cetera. So I wanted to move on a little bit and start thinking about kind of how to understand what we mean by disinformation here. And I want to focus on one slice of it. And that slice is visual disinformation. So we're talking about situations here where we have intentional misinformation being put forth. 
and advanced. So that's the disinformation part. And an important dimension of that is the visual component. It's not just circulating texts and information like that, but it also has this really kind of strong visual component that has been an important radicalizing element within social media. Walter, could you tell us a little bit about kind of what we mean by this type of visual disinformation, if you could add a little bit to it, and also the importance particularly of political memes? Yeah, absolutely. So number one, it's important to note that the way we communicate has changed drastically over the past, I'd say, 20 years or so, as the internet becomes pervasive in everyone's life around the globe, especially at the point when we introduce the smartphone as a technology. We all have a computer now on our person, right, all of the time, and we're constantly checking it. And the moments in which we check these phones can be fleeting. So we're not going to have a lot of time to compose long messages, <laughs> to read long form pieces on politics. We need to be able to communicate rapidly, to be able to understand a message, and then propagate a message, perhaps with some minor changes as we see fit, all in an instant. So enter the meme. Memes start to become popular on the internet. In the early to mid-2000s, we see forums like Reddit and 4chan uh, starting to create them as jokes. And so a meme, briefly defined, is really just a piece of content, usually an image, that's meant to convey a message quite rapidly, and it's meant to propagate and evolve, most interestingly, thanks to accessible image editing software packages like Photoshop, the open source package GIMP. It's very easy for ordinary users without a lot of skill to change media content. And then thanks to the internet, quickly send it off you know, via a social media service, via uh, some other messaging service, and get it out there. And because we have the whole world at our disposal right, as an audience, this content tends to propagate quite widely. Now, the memes started out as jokes. The original creators of these pieces of content we're just having some fun, right? It's very creative. Uh, and in some sense, it still is. I think we're all familiar with funny memes uh, spreading on the internet. But it starts to get more serious over time, more political messaging, often with humor, but saying something about the state of politics uh, at a particular moment that the meme is being created. And this takes a darker turn over time. And more alarming messaging tends to be more popular. The more extreme the messaging is, the higher chance this content is going to end up having some reach in terms of its audience. And that's where we start to end up having problems. And if you look at the way various extremist groups are now organizing, a lot of it has to do with recruitment on social media, spreading these messages to bring people into the fold. There's a lot of in-group messaging and memes these days. And this becomes then a really interesting aspect of the problem to study because a lot of the discourse is contained directly in these media objects. Again, this is not even textual postings in many cases. In many instances, we see that a meme has no text content on it whatsoever, but the visual depiction that we're looking at in this scene is what's telling us what's going on and what's getting, again, various members of groups uh, energized, what's bringing new people into the fold. So when we think about memes, when we think about studying memes, there are two basic categories that we're interested in. Remix memes. So this is, I think, the more traditional category that we think about when we think about memes. So this is an image probably modified or manipulated in some way, an interesting photo montage or uh, something has been altered in the scene uh, to convey the joke, convey the message. In a political context, right, this is usually a political figure pasted into an image where they were not originally present in some humorous context. 
or perhaps write some context that's meant to mislead the viewer into thinking something happened, but it didn't. And this happens then over and over and over again, right? This is where the word remix comes in. Uh, again, using photo editing software, users can manipulate different versions of these things and distinct genres start to emerge. For instance, one I've seen circulating uh, related to QAnon recently is uh, a variation on the Gadsden flag, which has been very common in far-right circles recently. Uh, this is the snake with the don't tread on me text from right. the American Revolution. It's been cleverly reworked so that the snake is in the letter Q, and the text at the bottom has re replaced with the QAnon catchphrase, when we go one, we go all. And if you look at video footage from the attack on the Capitol, you'll see this flag in a physical manifestation. Uh, but again, this is something that sort of came out of the internet and is riffing on this theme. When it comes to reenactment memes, what you tend to see people doing hand gestures, you know, configuring their body in a certain way, signaling to other members of the group, right, that they're in the know, that they're part of the broader movement. An example of this, which appeared online a few years ago, the OK symbol, right, which is pretty mm -hmm. innocuous under ordinary circumstances, uh, was co-opted by white supremacists. Uh, you know, this would be their symbol. And that's insidious because, right, that's going to pass through any sorts of filters because it's a common gesture, right? Many people do this type of symbol. But now if you look at, again, a lot of video footage from different demonstrations involving these movements, uh, you'll see people doing this. Uh, and again, it's sort of this in-group signaling. So, so again, very, very diverse amount of information that we have to think about when we're trying to parse this, right? Both as, as you know, scholars and as uh, computer scientists trying to build systems, AI systems, to watch for this type of stuff. So we basically have, am I correct then, we have remix memes and then these other ones that are, re could you remind us that term again? Uh, Reenactment memes. Reenactment memes. I think it's worth, this is a kind of a good moment to think a little about how to respond to these things. So we have a situation, the three of us have been working on a project now for a bit, that effectively is looking at how to think systematically in a kind of a coherent and a broad way about how to find patterns and the distribution of these types of memes as indicators of potential instability, right? So it's kind of connected to broadly thinking, not only early warning for violence, but very broadly understanding how this kind of information is spread out and how it may reinforce disruptions and political instability in a particular society. So kind of forward-looking. I was wondering if we could just take a moment here, Walter, and I want to open this up to both of you, but we'll start with you, Walter, since you've been at the center of it. If we could talk a little bit about what the different components are of studying and following these memes. So we understand that memes as a form of political disinformation can be very problematic. What does it mean to actually bring in artificial intelligence, which is something you both have expertise in, to track and tag and understand these patterns of, of diffusion? What are the components? Yeah. That's a great question, Ernesto. And the answer, of course, is complicated. But I'm going to try to unpack it here in plain language for our non-technical audience. What you want to do is, number one, right, collect the information you're interested in. And so right away, you have a tough question. Where do I find the memes? Where do I go to collect this information? Fortunately, there are so many public forums. It's not hard to find this content. In fact, many listeners may have seen this, right? Maybe your relatives are sharing this content. <laughs> But there are some known places where a lot of it uh, can be found. For instance, I mentioned the forum 4chan. This is a collection of, of different image boards where users anonymously post whatever they want. 
And it's become a center of organizing activity uh, on the far right. And it's really, again, the, the sort of genesis of many of these memes. So you can go to a place like that and simply download the content, build your database. But now you have a question, what's interesting, right? In many cases, the content that's being posted um, is not political, has nothing to do with what you're interested in. How, how do you filter this? A good place to start is to look for images that have been changed in some way. They've gone through some series of editing operations. Now you have something that may be interesting, right? Someone spent some time modifying the original image. This may be suspicious. Let's look at it in a more in-depth way. So now you have further questions. What's in the image? What does it depict, right? If there are people in the image, can we detect those people? Can we identify who they are? Um, you can turn to other technologies in AI like face recognition, which is, of course, very controversial when we think about how it's been applied in other contexts. But for this one, it's pretty useful, right? Especially for trying to just uh, identify public figures, right? Especially political figures. We can triage, we can surface, right? Images of people we're interested in, because perhaps, right, there's an ongoing crisis involving this set of people. And that lets us further reduce the pool of images we want to look at further. We can then start to understand in a deeper way what has changed about the image. Not that something has just changed, but what were those modifications? Have people and objects been spliced into the image? Have parts of the image been rearranged in some way? These are operations we want to identify using the tools from media forensics, which is an emerging area in computer science, which is trying to answer these questions. Once we have some notion of how the image has been edited, if content was copied into this image, it'd be nice to know where it came from. Also, it would be nice to know if other copies of this image have appeared elsewhere on the internet. So this involves another set of technologies from the area of image provenance analysis, letting us trace all of these things. This is really important because in many cases, these composite images are trying to portray a scene which was alleged to have you know, uh, occurred very recently. But once you start to look at the different pieces, you find out that no, 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 you know, th this is an arrangement of pieces that are very, very old. This could be, you know, a background that was taken from a photo 15 years ago. This could be uh, a picture of a politician from a year ago, right? All of these things are being rearranged in one of these remix memes, right, to, to portray a scene that, that just never, never occurred. And then finally, what's the meaning of it all, right? What message was this image supposed to convey? Now we get at the frontier of artificial intelligence, semantic analysis. Reasoning like a person can reason about this content is extremely difficult right now for computers. Uh, and that's where a lot more research is needed so we can interpret what these things are. Because again, some of them are just jokes, right? And maybe that's fine. I mean, there are plenty of innocuous political jokes out there, which are not going to lead to violence, but are arranged in similar fashion. This is the final step we need to figure out whether or not we need to take further action. Great, thank you. So essentially, when we're looking at this, we're talking about multiple steps. One is the process of collection, an enormous number of memes and other visual artifacts. Secondly, you emphasize the importance of being able to draw distinctions over what kinds of memes you even want to look at, so that kind of categorization. And it seems that the importance of analysis of both the content, but ultimately also the provenance where it's coming from, this takes enormous computational power and sophistication. And then lastly, that meaning part the semantic analysis as you discussed it, being able to understand what this all means is really crucial. And I wanna underscore here that one of the challenges that we've found of course is just the overwhelming 
amount of information to be managed. That the reason why artificial intelligence and other types of computational approaches are important is because the scale is otherwise makes it difficult or even impossible for humans to adequately deal with this kind of information. The scale is overwhelming. Michael, I don't know if you had a few points that you want to add along here, but I also have some questions for you. Let's turn to you. No, there's two things I'd like to add into what Walter has already said, the excellent explanations Walter has already detailed for us. And that would be twofold. The first is with regards to the interpretive capacities of our artificial intelligence systems at the current time. As Walter mentioned, you know, this is really the sort of bleeding edge of artificial intelligence development. A lot of people, when they hear the term artificial intelligence, think about artificial intelligence as it's deployed in science fiction or as, you know, people like Elon Musk, for example, warn about what artificial intelligence is going to do to human society. And those concerns are so far in the future if they exist at all, in the sense that where current artificial intelligence technology is, is nowhere near that capacity that is often feared about or often worried about in the science fiction realms. We are really very unable to mimic much of higher human cognitive function in computers. We can do certain things with perception. Computer systems are able to, you know, interpret parts of an image and sort of identify this is a tree, this is a person, etc. But like Walter was describing, being able to make meaning of something as complex as a meme in a context with a larger sense of the conversation that's happening around it or that has happened before it is incredibly far beyond the capacity of current artificial intelligence technology. So we are really pushing to try and build these systems to understand the meaning of what is going on in a meme or in a discussion on social media. But we are so far from the sort of world-dominating artificial intelligence that is often worried about in science fiction. So I just want to point that out and make that clear. Then the second point that I wanted to make was with regards to being able to detect the manipulations that have gone on in an information space or in an, in an image, for example, is one part of this very important work. The second part of that is being able to sort of, again, place that within the larger conversation. And that is really something that re requires an enormous amount of not just compute power, but also ability to, to look at the larger conversation in history and to amass all that data is, is just a huge, huge technical challenge and problem. And so we are really working at to, to understand a bit more about that. Because again, as Walter was saying, you know, memes are making historical references, memes are deploying symbols, memes are deploying and, and gesturing towards or hinting at things that humans are able to perceive and understand uh, almost immediately or at a quick glance as we're looking at something on our social media feeds. But for computers to be able to actually understand that is, is an incredibly challenging process. The last thing I'd want to point out is that there is a really interesting dynamic at play in the artificial intelligence space, which is the sort of competition between the creation mechanisms and then the detection mechanisms. So right now in 2021, there are readily available software packages that will allow any user to create deepfake video, deepfake audio, and to do manipulations on images. Could you say what deepfake um, is? Just could you give us the one sentence version of deepfake? A deepfake would be. And Walter, I'd be curious if your definition of a deepfake, I would hazard the definition of a deepfake as a media unit that has been created, which never existed in the real. So it is using a computer to create a video of someone doing something that they never in fact actually did. So it wasn't a recording of them doing it. It was produced in a computer and made 
them look like they had done something. So there are some examples of deep fakes. Perhaps we can include those in some of the links of, for example, Mark Zuckerberg, the Facebook CEO, giving an interview, but the entire interview has been deep faked. It's not his voice. It's not his words. He never said the things that are in the video. There are other examples. There's one of President Obama, an example of how powerful deep fake technology has become. So this is a technology that allows for the creation of media content that never actually occurred in real life. And as detection capacities increase in their abilities, so too do the creation abilities increase. And so you have this sort of ratcheting effect where we are suddenly at a point where many people, especially on a small screen on a social media feed, are not going to be able to detect with their eyes whether or not content has been manipulated. This emphasizes the necessity of artificial intelligence systems, not just to handle the volume of material that's being created, but also to be able to detect when manipulations have actually occurred, that oftentimes human users won't actually even be able to notice. Great, thanks. Walter, did you have a, a point you wanted to add on that? Yeah, I would agree with, with all of those things. Uh, again, I think there's a lot of debate around artificial intelligence right now. And again, we see the the good and the bad of it playing out on the internet every day, but it's still early, right? We're, we're in very early days with this technology. And so I think trying to use the best parts of it, right, in the service of, of good is, is where we want to be at. Of course, it is a significant challenge, right? And part of it is because these instruments are extremely powerful, but the challenge is precisely, I think, gets back to something that Michael was talking about, this ratcheting up process where the detection mechanisms have to become ever more powerful, ever more sophisticated because the systems and the processes by which misinformation is created themselves become more sophisticated and more powerful. So something that falls outside the scope of what humans can actually keep track of in any realistic and profitable sense, any valuable sense. You have to rely on these very powerful tools. And this allows us to think a little bit more broadly about some of the broader ethical questions. So this project that we're working on, of course, is a pretty straightforward peace studies type of project. And what I mean by that is that it's a project that focuses on visual disinformation because of the ways it can contribute to political instability, to violence, to the marginalization of certain peoples, etc. So it has a direct normative or political component to it. But more broadly, the use of these types of technologies bring up really powerful and really contentious questions about who should be able to employ them, who should be able to use them. But they also bring up really powerful questions about just the nature of reality and how we make sense of reality. And here I wanted to bring a question back to Michael, because I know, you know with your background in theology, you've thought a lot about questions of ethics. And I want to get to this kind of question of the ethics of reality. That is, once we know what's going on with these disinformation campaigns, how do we get people around the table when they have different perceptions of reality? How do we bring them together once we have identified and continue to identify these complex patterns of disinformation? That's a very good and a very challenging question. I mean, I think that this really is a question that we all are going to have to grapple with going forward if, as we continue to watch the advancement of social media and watch it continue to integrate into our lives and as we continue to make use of it and as more and more of our lives shifts onto online mediums. Uh, you know, this is a very particular and unique moment that we're in in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic as well. Because what we've seen is already social spaces, shared social spaces, were on the decline. You can look at a book, you know, a study, they're just bowling alone that sort of looks at the sort of erosion of civil society in the, the recent past. 
we are already in that moment. And then COVID-19 hits and we're under lockdown. Many of us are isolated. We're sort of spending more and more time in line connected to the internet, connected to our friends and family and loved ones on the internet. But more and more, we are finding most of our discourse being online. And I think that that means we have to have ongoing conversations about what evidence we are going to count as valuable, what evidence we're going to count as legitimate. This is a very important part of this conversation because what we're seeing is different groups of people, if we want to call them different tribes of people, different groups of people who would count and consider different forms of evidence to be valid or not valid. We need to have a longer conversation about this. We need to have a conversation about which sources are trustworthy. We need to have a conversation about what evidence should be considered and how it should be weighted. So we need to have a much more in-depth conversation about this, I think. So in a sense, we can do that online. We need to be having those kinds of spaces and conversations about evidence. We need tools to flag manipulations in media. We need tools to flag when content seems to be not just you know something that we might disagree with, but something that actually seems to be falsified that is a, a, of a disinformation campaign. We need those tools and those technologies. We also need this broader conversation, I think, about the ethics of evidence and what we think counts as evidence, what sources we are going to put our trust in. But also beyond that, I think a really important part for us to be thinking about as we come out of the COVID-19 pandemic, hopefully in the near future, you know, the next year or so or the year after, is a chance to begin reimagining what civil society and what shared social spaces can look like. Can we have the meetings with those with whom we might very strongly disagree in order to begin to rehumanize what has become an intensely divisive political space where it's so easy to demonize one another across the board? And I'm speaking particularly you know, to the United States context, but in general, in peace studies, a really important principle is is trying to get the relevant actors to the table to be able to have a conversation and to be able to forge a way forward. Now, obviously, there are certain actors who are going to try and blow up that process, who are going to try and you know derail that process from even taking place. But a willingness to come together, I and mean, this is what President Joe Biden said in his inaugural address. And he said, you know, if you disagree with me, or if you didn't support our campaign, hear me out. Take a measure of me and take a measure of my heart. And that invitation to come together and to engage in a process of deliberation and to engage in a process of the giving and receiving of reason, of reasons for what we believe or what we hold to be true or what we think is worthy of aligning our beliefs with or our assumptions about reality with, a willingness to hear one another's reasons for that, and then to have a good faith deliberation and a good faith debate about those things seems to be a really important part of how we go forward from this. Now, that can take place online, and it should be aided by the tools that we're talking about here, the development of tools for the detection of deliberate misinformation and disinformation campaigns. But I think it also needs to begin to happen more and more in the real, as it were as we're coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic and as we are able to sort of see some of the incredible damage that just having debates online is doing to the very fabric of American democracy and to political discourse around the world. So those are some of the things I would I, I think are just really, really critical. An evaluation of evidence, an evaluation of the sources that we are believing and listening to, and a, a consideration of those things, and then a willingness to engage in debates, uh, the giving and receiving of reasons with one another, uh, even with those with whom we might disagree, in order to begin to rebuild a way forward about a, a sense of reality, a sense of what information counts, a sense of what information is trustworthy and valid, and going forward from this very, very contentious and divided moment. 
Thank you for that. Yes, in fact, I, I think one of the things that this project can do, or these types of projects, so outside the scope of just this specific one, is at least give us a baseline or a set of parameters by which we can actually have debates and discussions. We need some sense of shared truth or what's happening around the world that roughly reflects objectively what is happening. But the bigger challenges of how to address these questions, these include all sorts of political and normative questions that go outside what the identification or the following of disinformation. So thank you for that. We are basically coming to the end of our conversation. Walter, I wanted to know if you had any other final points that you wanted to add, and then I think we can we can wrap this up. Yeah, one final point, again, just thinking about what Michael just said, you know, it's like, what can we do to, to basically, you know, increase civility, right? How, how can we, you know, relearn to interact with each other? The internet has become a terrible place, right? <laughs> Use the internet, you know what I'm talking about. It seems to me that people are going there to fight, right, and not do anything constructive. You know, how can we change that? And again, this isn't just one one side of the political you know spectrum going there to fight. This is everybody. But I think I think we really need to back off that and really think about how we we should be using technology in our lives. How can we do that constructively? How can we make the world a better place? Not fight all the time. <laughs> well, that that's certainly the challenge. Thank you both very much for this conversation. And I think we will wrap it up now. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Very Thank much, you. You've been listening to the CrocCast, Peace Studies Conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies. You can find all episodes of the CrocCast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and online at croc.nd.edu slash podcast. You can also rate and review our show, which will help more people to find us. For more updates and stories from the Croc Institute, follow us online on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.